you know, I, I joked in being likened to a roller coaster at the nine o'clock that that just sounds nauseating. And I don't think I can get away with that, even with the metaphor of a restaurant, because restaurants can be equally as nauseating. So um, I hope what you consume today is delightful. Uh, that being said, speaking of consumption, um, I, I noticed cake and donuts and like some really sugary muffins in your lobby on the way in. And I, you know, we're still in Epiphany, but I got to tell you, as we move up to Lent, Lent's going to be really hard for you guys. You guys are going to have a real struggle with this part of the calendar. Either that or you're really good at feasting and then really good at fasting. And so um, I can't wait for Feb 22. I should really fly back in just to observe everyone walking in and seeing like nothing on the counter. That's going to be welcome to Lent. Um, I, I had a, a really um, beautiful time here both last, morning, last, uh, last night and, and this morning. And um, I've shared this and all. I just feel like it's, it's appropriate. I, I was struck. So where I pastor, um, we meet in a, a cathedral was, that was constructed in the 18th century, or not the, 18, the 1800s, 19th century. And, you know, stained glass, pillars, the whole nine yards. But what we don't have is, is two pieces of wood that remind you of the absurdity that God died on wood. I mean, you just say that, and it's something that over time you sort of become familiar with, and it, it shouldn't. It should always sort of startle us that, that God died on wood to pay for the sin of the world, that we might go free and truly be who we were intended to be and for creation to be entirely reclaimed in God's domain. Um, Tertullian, one of the early theologians, said this, credo aquia absurdum, which means I believe because it's absurd. Not because it's anti-intellectual. And he was a pagan philosopher who began to consider the claims of the cross, the claims of the absurdity of the church, that God would die on wood, and to say, who would actually make this up? No, no wise philosopher or good theologian would say that God would come to earth and die on two planks of wood for the sin of the world to give freedom to the cosmos. That just is, it's not rational. It's not normative. It was not happening in Greek philosophy or in any of what they felt like the Jewish scriptures was leading them to necessarily at the time. And so I just want us to begin by simply understanding that coming to Christ in the first place, and maybe you're just kind of considering this, for anyone that would say Christ is Lord and that on these two pieces of wood something happened, that's a miracle. That's not rational. That's not reasoned. That's absurd. And we believe because it's absurd, but we believe because we have experienced it to be true. And it's an amazing thing, this thing we call the faith, because it transcends anything that someone could have just made up. And it's a divine invitation into true reality. So it's such a a great opportunity to be here. I was here last May speaking and taking part in the Praxis Conference and truly felt such a connection with what God was doing in this community, with what God is doing in our communities in New York, uh, where I pastor. And I felt really kindred really quickly. Um, Ed has just become a dear friend of mine. His son helps lead one of our churches in New York. And I just have to tell you, based on this next image that is about to come up, should this go well, you can have me back any February weekend <laughs> for the rest of my life. That would be great. Um, but last weekend, Chris Green ended his sermon this way, and he left us with a profound question, and he asked this question. How much of what we do is reaching out to create something admirable because we don't really know we're loved? That's where I hope to begin today, so permit me to introduce you to the 20th century fine artist Siegfried Reinhardt. 
Is anyone aware of his work? Is anyone a fine artist in the room? A few of you maybe, a few painters. Siegfried was a, an interesting character uh, in the 20th century. Uh, I think he was probably one of the most provocative artists of that time. He entitled this next work I'll bring up. That's a self-portrait of him. Here's a portrait, or here's a picture he, a painting he painted called The Light. This was painted in 1959. And I'm not sure any other canvas better captures the essence of our time. And I'll tell you why. When you begin at the top, what you see is a very darkened image of the crucified Jesus. And as you move down the painting, what you then find next in the center is the Christ risen, the risen Christ after the crucified Jesus. And as you continue to go down this painting, you'll find then a man playing the saxophone. And he looks perhaps naked. And next to him, behind his shoulder, you'll see a woman dancing in ecstasy. And now you'll notice that a really subtle, but not so subtle shift once you begin to detect this and pull it out. The crucified Jesus, who is darkened and bloodied and bruised, he has a crown of thorn on his head. But when it comes down to the risen Christ you see that Christ is now holding that crown of thorns almost in a way that is like a tambourine. And the meaning of that, they believe, was this, that Jesus is taking this song of death and transforming it into a song of life. That the very thing that put Jesus on two planks of wood and etched in his skull, this crown of thorns, is the very action that he's taking it off and sort of playing a tune with a tambourine at the top of his sort of gusto saying, there is a new song of life here for all who wants it. Now, what's weird about this is as you scale down the painting, you come back to the man playing the saxophone. And what the man playing the saxophone is doing is playing his own jazz tune. And the woman is dancing to his tune, not the tune of the risen Christ. Essentially, the painting means this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Who cares? I'm not sure there's a better piece of art to describe, at least the culture which I'm immersed in, and maybe you too, this idea that God is playing a resurrection song and inviting all who will to the table, but we have better tunes to play in our soundtrack. We have better things to do. And I think this, this piece of art is all about pursuit. And it begs questions like, what, are, what is your life really going after? Not what you state it's going after, but really what's the evidence in your life, your, your in-use values? What are you really going after? What direction are you really Facing, I love that about the jazz musician. He's, he's literally facing another direction altogether. What direction are you facing? What are you really pursuing? Because here's what we know. No one accidentally becomes like Jesus. It is an intentional pursuit. No one actually becomes, accidentally, excuse me, becomes like Jesus. It is an intentional pursuit pursuit. So with that, let's move into the text this morning. Allow me to pray that we might bring ourselves to a text that has transformed human lives for hundreds and hundreds of years. Lord, we ask that you would once again, Holy Spirit, stir up these words to enlighten our minds, to open our ears, and to put courage and enlightening in our hearts that we might know the truth and willfully walk in obedience all the days of our life. We ask this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Gospel writer Luke begins in verse 12 for our reading 
of chapter six. Now, during those days, he, meaning Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray and he spent the night in prayer to God. When he came, when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles. Verse 17, skipping down, he came down with them and stood on a level place with the crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem, the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd who were trying to touch him, for power came out of him and healed all of them. That's an interesting phrase. And power came out of him. And power came out of him. I want to camp on this phrase for just a moment. When was the last time someone said this phrase about you? And power came out of her. And power came out of him. I mean, think about it. I mean, it's, it's an interesting statement to say. It's an interesting thing to record. I mean, imagine, like, I was with Ed last night. We were having dinner. And, man, I was hanging with Ed Gunger at Kilkenny's. And all of a sudden, lo and behold, power just came out of him. And it was amazing. It was very, very interesting, right? This is a challenging passage. And I think it's a crucial passage for the Christian for a number of reasons. In verses 13 through 18, Luke shows us that Jesus was committed to a couple things. So you look at the back half of this verse, 13 all the way through 18. Jesus was committed to dynamic community and to life and ministry. It seems very clear from this text. You can see it. He called his disciples. In other words, people to be with him, people to do life with. And then they went down together and power came out of Christ as they ministered. And so we look at life and community. We look at life and ministry. And we all sort of long for that. And some of us are sitting into that more profoundly than others. And we're, we would say, yeah, we want dynamic community. It's why we do house churches, as you guys are doing here. right? This idea of moving beyond networking, moving beyond acquaintances, into committed relationships, into intimacy, into support, such as people that show up at the hospital, not because they have a job title, but because they're woven into the fabric of your life. People that show up in certain places because they care and are faithful to your life and to the trajectory of where you are going and all the seasons that you go through. Dynamic community is something we all long for. But then there's another thing happening in this text. We see really powerful, really powerful ministry, not religion, not sort of institutionalism. This idea of powerful ministry that wherever you go, the rooms that you walk into seem to make a difference throughout the course of the week, something happens because of you when you show up that sort of changes the atmosphere of the places that you're in. And this can be really supernaturally normal, such as like listening really, really well, or being generous with your resources, or being hospitable. Or it can be something a little bit even more seemingly profound, such as giving words of knowledge, or physical, emotional, spiritual healing with those, with those gifts, right? In other words, the places that you go, something leaks out of you that brings good news to the environments in which you inhabit. And we're sort of starving for this in our life, for dynamic community, fruitful ministry. These things happening, if the text is saying these things were characteristic of Jesus, why am I not experiencing this to this level? Isn't there more? And the crisis is that this sort of text always kinds of, it always kind of seems out of reach. It's just beyond our grasp. Or, you know, that's someone else's life. That's not quite 
mine because I, I don't live like that and I don't have that sort of joy or that sort of capacity, I don't think. Or perhaps, perhaps you think we aren't meant to live like Jesus. That there's a reason Jesus came to do what we couldn't. And so this is the way Jesus lived. It isn't really the way Christians are to take seriously. But, you know, being the Pentecostals that you are, I, I'm sure you don't buy that, right? But if we are meant to live like Jesus and to grow into Christ's likeness, the question begs to be asked, what's lacking? Why am I not seeing this kind of fruit in my life? And instead of offering some clever formula, I would say that there is something for us in verse 12 that's really important that we grasp on our way to saying, God, we want more community, more family, more empowered ministry, more of the gospel leaking out of our lives into all sectors of society. And verse 12, at the very beginning of this, Luke says this, now during those days, he went out to the mountain to pray and he spent the night in prayer to God. Without verse 12, I suggest the rest of this passage would have never occurred. That there's something in verse 12 that permits the rest of this chapter to happen and that it matters the way in which Luke is framing this. The power of God that we long for in and through our life, the power of God isn't something that we arbitrarily tap into at certain places in certain moments of our lives. It's something that we are relationally entrusted with. The power of God isn't something we tap into. It's something we are relationally entrusted with in access to power. It comes through intimacy with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I think often in these kind of circles, it's so easy to, to want to tap into something quickly and take it by hold, and this sort of kingdom suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. But we know that those who are slowly moving into God have intimately been given and entrusted the power of the kingdom to move as ambassadors in this world with the power of God on their life. Because there's an intimacy through which it flows. Another word for this is solitude. And so we're going to spend the rest of our morning talking about. Solitude, I would suggest, is the forgotten practice in a frenetic world of quick fixes, of omnipresent technology, and spiritual gimmicks. And I think solitude is really the answer to Chris Green's question from last week. Now, ironically, as I thought about uh, this morning, I, I began to think, you know, who historically practiced solitude really well? And I started to think about through his lyrics, uh, Axl Rose, anyone? Guns N' Roses? Any, any, anyone above 30 that can bear witness that Guns N' Roses was, was, was good? I mean, this was, this was a good time in music. Um, you know what I'm talking about. November Rain, that song that went on seemingly forever, right? Went something like, sometimes you need some time on your own. Sometimes, I, I love the personalization here. Sometimes I need some time, Axl sang all alone. And then comes the best part of the song. Ooh. <laughs> Everybody needs some time on your own. Don't you know you need some time? There's a question all alone. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. Axel Rose gets the way of Jesus. I'm convinced he was under the Holy Spirit in this moment, guiding these lyrics. But Anne Schreiber, if you've heard of that name, probably not. Anne Schreiber lived quietly alone, single, in the Upper West Side 
in a rent-stabilized apartment in New York City. And by the way, in case you're interested, rent stabilization, those days are gone. She lived in a place of peeling paint. I want you to imagine this. Outdated furniture in a bookcase caked in dust. Her studio lacked any semblance of luxury. She walked everywhere, often in the same black coat and matronly hat. In other words, judging by appearances, we would say that she would have worked downstairs at Downton Abbey, right? In 1944... In 1944, she left her job at the IRS. And after that, her lawyer, Ben Clark, said that she rarely left home. And with just $5,000 in her savings, she completely devoted herself to studying the stock market and decided to make some investments. After her death, her lawyer said this, she was the most unusual person I ever knew. She was the most unusual person I ever knew. And listen, coming from someone in New York, that's weird, right? (laughs) Over the next half century, she parlayed $5,000 into a portfolio that included holdings in companies like Coca-Cola, Paramount, you know, in case you've heard of them. And by her death in 1995, at the age of 101, her stocks were worth around $22 million. Now you can hear the sigh in the room. Wow, profound. Simple investments over time, time, intention. Just before her death, she allowed herself one final act of big spending, her will. And in it, she left a sum of money to Yeshiva University for young women in need of scholarships, $22 million. To a school she never attended to help students she never met. Dr. Norman Lom, who is the president of Yeshiva, said of her, here was a woman who for 101 years was childless and now becomes a mother to a whole community, not only now, but for generations to come. Profound. You know, the first time I read her obituary, I thought, it's staggering what is possible through solitude. Staggering. And if Anne Scheiber can live a profound life through the intentionality of a little thing like the stock market, I would just suggest to imagine what intentionality and intimacy with the Spirit of God, not such a small thing, could do through you. We sort of sit back and are in awe, are taken aback of the profundity of this solitude life to do one thing really well, to pursue the stock market, a little thing. And I think we fail to see the power of a not-so-little thing, of intimacy with the one who created the entire universe. What Jesus did in solitude empowered his entire ministry. And I think Luke includes it in his gospel so that it may empower ours. No one accidentally becomes like Jesus. It's an intentional pursuit. I think the problem that many of us have, me included, is that the practice of solitude doesn't really fit easily into our schedules. It doesn't sort of coincide with the directions we're headed. It's it's a weird thing. It's... It doesn't fit. It's usually the first thing to go in everyday life when all of life sort of gets crazy and the pace and all of the ways in which we are always going in crazy directions. Solitude's one of those optional practices that seems to be available when we can sort of 
sort of self-select and when we get around to it. But know this, that solitude is actually designed to be disruptive. There's nothing about solitude that says, oh, fiddly-dee, let me just put this into my schedule. It works so beautifully into the sunset. It's actually designed to be disruptive, particularly in modern, postmodern environments in which we are in. It disrupts the noise of life. It's a rebuke. It's an affront. It's a statement of contrast. It disrupts the voices of post-industrialism that we're steeped in, that constantly tell you that you're worth only what you can produce, that you're only as good as your personal GDP, and that's how valuable you are. Silence and solitude is designed to disrupt the voices of post-enlightenment that tell us that all there really is to life is what you can see and taste and touch. It tells you that there's more happening in the world than what the senses reveal. Solitude and silence disrupts the voices of our constant temptations to compete, to compare, and to control, which are crushing us. And we're going to move into a lot of that this evening as to how to move into that and disrupt those tyrannies in our life. Solitude disrupts the noise. And I think what it does is it invites us into the presence of God who has actually given us a name that we cannot earn. Someone, someone once said this, that God's voice is often silent. And I know many of you over the course of your years, there's moments of just, you feel like you're hearing God. You feel amazing breakthrough. You feel like when you're experiencing the scripture, it's the right page and the right moment in life. And yet there's so many chunks of seasons where we feel like, is God saying anything at all? Did I make this sort of up? Was it bad Mexican that I was thinking? And this is why I felt the way I did. Like, where are you, God, right? All of these questions that come up for us. Someone once said that God's voice is often silent. Because, thanks be to the blood of Jesus, God doesn't have any accusation against you. No longer does a holy God, because of Jesus' blood, have anything to say against you. And you look at these two planks of wood behind me, and you think, what more does God really need to say? And, and God's loquacious. God continues to speak. Don't get me wrong. But have we not heard enough, at least to carry us through this life? So what if God's voice of silence is actually an affirmation of your identity? Here's what I'm going to ask you to reconsider for the remainder of our time. I want you to reconsider the beginnings of your day. I want you to reconsider the cracks in your day. And then I want you to reconsider the conclusion in your day. And what's at stake here is I would suggest that it's only from this place of solitude, that true community and true ministry begins to take place consistently. We'll say that. Start with the beginnings of our day. I would suggest that it's, it's possible and probably plausible that the most important moment of your day is the first moment of your day. Because it's that moment, unlike the jazz musician with the saxophone, it's that moment that sets the tone for your, the pursuit of the rest of your, of your day. It's that moment that defines what you are about, what you're really after. It's that first reach. When your alarm hits, I can tell you this, the allure of social media, of push notifications, of email, of voicemail, of morning news, etc., etc., all have their place, don't get me wrong. They're just not great launching pads to spring you into a day of fullness. That's not what they're designed to do. Bonhoeffer said it well. He said that we are silent at the beginning of the day is because God should have the first word. 
And I think that's right. I think Jesus knew that silence and solitude was vital because it was only there that he could solidify his identity. It was there that he could draw resource and have vision for healthy community and dynamic ministry. And like Jesus, for us, solitude is that place where we begin to remember who we are. And only when we do that at our core can we then reorient all of our priorities based upon that. Henri Nouwen, the great, the great thinker, once said, solitude is the place in which you can listen to the voice of the one who calls you the beloved. Let's pause here for a second in that quote. I just want to press into this. Solitude is the place in which you can listen to the voice of the one who calls you the beloved. This reminds me a lot of Jesus's baptism. You remember Jesus's baptism where the dove descends and there's this voice and the voice says these words. The voice says, this is my beloved, this is my son, the beloved. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well Please, now notice this. Notice that the father's assessment of the son was given before the son had done any ministry at all. It was at the beginning of his ministry. He hasn't proven anything. He hasn't done anything. He's been carving stones. He's been shaping tables. He's been building chairs. Whatever carpenters did back then, that's what Jesus has been up to. Normal existence. Loving God in the synagogue. Being a part of the family. And what we see is that the father comes along and declares that the son is beloved. And it's from this place that Jesus has to recover every single day. In other words, your identity and my identity is never achieved by what's happened by the end of our day. It's always received and designed to inform how we live. It comes before you've done anything at all. It has nothing to do with your gifts. It has nothing to do with any of that. It's all because God has decided to say, you are my beloved daughter and I love you. Would you please believe me because it will change the rooms that you walk in all day. Would you please believe that you're my son. I got plans for your life that will blow your mind, but you got to trust me. It's an amazing, amazing thing. The first move of your day matters. I think it's there that we realize that our names are be loved. Because the problem, at least with me, is that I disbelieve that and I quickly want to earn love and find love and get love when all the time I'm already be loved. It's my name. Now when continues on in the rest and he says, to pray is to let that voice, what voice? The one that calls you beloved, the one that's named you that. It's to let that voice speak to the center of your being. I love this, to your guts, he says. And to let that, let that voice resound in your whole being. That's why the first day, first thing in your day matters. It realigns you in your truest identity and gives you the best possibility of living from that place, which begs this simple question. Do you have a rhythm to the beginning of your day? Scripture, stillness, prayer, a walk. Do you have a rhythm? What is it? No one accidentally becomes like Jesus. It's an intentional pursuit. We tracking? We awake? We good? Like a cake hangover? <laughs> Sugar. Moving us into the cracks of our day. Cracks of our day. What do I mean by this? I mean those little tiny increments 
of life in between meetings, in the car, uh, when the kids are napping, praise be to God, right? <laughs> when the kids are at school, all of these things, contrary to what you might think, what we do in the cracks of life isn't incidental. It's not, it, it's, it's actually subconsciously wired to be intentional and you're not even aware of it. What we do in the cracks of life are informed by our habits that we create and then crystallize over time. And we're not even really aware of it. Recent brain studies uh, show how habits have been, and they become embedded in the brain over time through the development of what's known as neural pathways. Have you guys heard of this? I'm sure. It's actually gained quite a bit of momentum in recent days, a study of neural pathways and how the brain functions and communicates from one lobe to the other, et cetera, et cetera. And what they're saying about this sort of thing as neural pathways, they describe these pathways as tire tracks in the brain that make ever-deepening ruts in the roadmap of your brain. So that's what these neural pathways are. And, and, and they're saying that our habits, what happens is they get into our neural pathways. They become part of this. And they determine the way in which we veer in life from one moment to the next. And it essentially means this. What we do in the cracks of our day is essentially based on the path of least resistance for our neural pathways. The ways in which we have done things and engaged in behaviors more and more, and the more in which we engage in certain behaviors, it becomes like tires in the mud, making ever-deepening ruts in the roadmap of your brain. And so it's therefore that old habits die hard, right? Listen to this staggering quote by John Whitberg. He says this, Mostly our behavior does not consist of a series of conscious choices. Somebody, oh, what? My freedom, my liberty. Are you serious? Right? Mostly our behavior is governed by habit. Most of the time, a change of behavior requires the acquisition of new habits. Why? Because it's, it's dug in deep. So you begin to default. And so some of you might be here saying, so what? Well, here's, here's the problem. When it comes to all these tiny increments in your day, we begin to move into living a life by filling all of these increments up into these default practices that bear such minimal spiritual fruit. They're just time wasters. They have zero consequence. And what happens, and this is like things like such as reaching for our cell phones at all times, whenever we're bored, it's like a, a move to the pocket. Like that has become the moment. If you have a six plus, then your purse, because it doesn't fit in your pocket, right? It's this sort of default moment where you can't, someone you can wear cargo pants. I'll, I'll give you that so you can fit it in that one, right? But there's this, this idea that we just kind of veer in these directions. And, and the issue is that as it turns out, all of these tiny cracks add up to a sizable amount of time throughout our day, throughout the course of our life, right? Last fall, my wife Elena and I were taking a walk alongside the Hudson. That's, we live on the west side of Manhattan where the Hudson River is. And we were just on this little walk with our dog and our daughter, and I was confessing my current level of dissatisfaction with intimacy with God. That if there were like greater levels of joy and peace and grace available, I wasn't moving into those things. And I, I wanted more of that. And, and I'd begun to realize in this conversation over the past year how my natural impulse had become technological rather than spiritual. Maybe a better way to put that to avoid any sort of dualism here is that I'm often more interested in being informed than transformed, right? And that's what we do with the cracks of our day. We seek information. 
We want, we want more when we're, so, when we're utilizing so little already in our life. We, we love the idea of being informed. And on this walk, I told her how, I just wonder if there's more joy available, if there's just more grace, if there's just more peace that would result if I just shifted these tiny moments of my habitual impulses and from reaching for my phone to something as simple as just communing in prayer. Like what, what that would actually mean. And then I'm in the middle of this conversation with her and then I thought this thought, oh man, that's good. I should tweet that. <laughs> just like that, I'm back into these impulses. It's just like, what, what is wrong with me? I have problems. So with the cracks of my life, I'm wondering what could shift if, if something is simple as every time I began to reach for my phone, and I'm not against phones, I love communication. It's a good thing, thank you. But what if every time I shifted to my phone by default, I just replaced it by repeating a simple prayer, a prayer that has actually been utilized in church history more than any other prayer, a prayer that goes like this, Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Some of you drive wherever you're going. I walk typically. And I'm thinking, what could meditating on this sort of prayer mean for the environment I'm about to go into, for the lunch that I'm about to have, for the meeting that I'm about to encounter? What might this create generatively through my life that might actually open things up for someone else's? How could this create dynamic community, fruitful ministry? Something so simple. I'm wondering what it would look like to be part of a church who are more committed to filling up the cracks of life with a Jesus prayer on their lips than their cell phones in their hands. I'm wondering what that would look like. Ellen Davis at Duke Divinity says this. Either we form... Now, this is going to make you like say, now that's good. Either we form daily habits that enable us to grow slowly in God or we yield by tiny increments to the insubstantial life that is, after all, the norm. Yeah. No one accidentally becomes like Jesus. It's an intentional pursuit. And the last thing is the conclusion of the day, finishing the day well. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, we are silent at the beginning of the day because God should have the first word. But then he says this, and we are silent before going to sleep because the last word also belongs to God. I love that, the inclusio of the day, the beginning, the bookends, right? Sleep is our daily reminder that you are not God. That's all it is. It reminds you that you don't have to be. That you don't actually need to be in control of your world as much as you think you do. That you don't have to continue to carry the anxieties to the level at which you continue to hold them. That we don't have to earn our identities and that we can trust that a God who never sleeps will remain vigil and present with us as we drift into the night. A God who hovers over, just like in Genesis, over the waters and imparts life into them and gives them grace 
and rest. And so we can, we can conclude the day, however it looks like for you, a simple prayer, a, a move, a, a moment of silence, in a way of this sort of posture of surrendered gratitude, that all of life is grace. And even though lamentation can come in the course of our day, we know at the end of it that everything that we have is given. It's all received. It's not achieved. It's all breath. It's all ruach coming at us that is given by grace. It's received, not achieved. And that is good. And what we find in the rearview mirror of life, the more and more that we are faithful to pursuing God, we find that all the time that we serve a God who has never stopped pursuing the world. That's what we find. In other words, we're met in the pursuit. That all spirituality, Richard Rohr once said to me, all spirituality is meeting. It's meeting not business meetings, not networking, but it's encounter is what he meant by that. It's face to face. It's the idea of God seeing you and saying, you, my child, are beloved. Would you please believe me? Because that would change some things in your life. What would it look like for you to reclaim the morning, first of all? What does reclaiming the morning look like? What would it look like for you to rewire the cracks of your life? to create some new habits that were generative for you and for others? And last, what would it look like for you to simply conclude the day with gratitude? Solitude matters. So I'll conclude with the way that Chris Green concluded. How much of what we do is reaching out to create something admirable because we don't really know that we're loved? The very beginning of Jesus' ministry the only thing the father tells him is that he's loved. And that created a really profound life, a life that we have all found life within. And I think that's one of the biggest things for us because either you will choose through solitude to have the culture of your soul shaped by the living God or it will be shaped for you by default within the noise of our culture. One of the two. So this evening for our contemplative workshop later, I just want to press into what solitude with God can really look like, how it's designed to bring rest right now where there's exhaustion, how it's designed to bring hope where there's despair, how it's designed to bring presence where there's loneliness, more where there's lacking. So I'd ask you to just consider joining me as we dive into the contemplative tradition where we'll learn and we'll practice some of the way of the mystics together because of this. No one becomes like Jesus by accident. It's an intentional pursuit. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary, or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.